Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today we're digging deeper into the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the patriarchs are a term that's thrown around in Christendom, but it's not actually in the scriptures in the same way. It refers to those three gentlemen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham being the eldest, his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. And the tradition in the scripture of referring to the patriarchs as spiritual leaders and sometimes models of our faith continues in Christendom even today in the ethnic Orthodox churches, such as Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox, their leaders are called the patriarchs. In fact, at one point in the history of Christendom, the Pope was one of the patriarchs before he decided that he was the patriarch and became the Pope. Different trajectory. But today we're going to be talking about the original patriarchs. And to borrow some language that we have in our context here as Americans, these are the forefathers, the founding fathers of our faith lineage. And it's not a lineage that's about genetics, but about this relationship. Abraham was the first person to whom God called out of obscurity and said, I want to have this relationship with you, and so I need you to pack up your family and everything that you can carry, and I need you to go way to another land that you've never been to before and that your people don't populate, and I want you to go there because one day I'm going to give it to you. And one day, your people will become many nations. And if you want to believe that, then I need you to go now. And most of us would go, whoa, time out. I need to do some research. we got to find a good neighborhood. I don't know the school system. We need to check on some things. Let's see how things are going. Can I have Cox or do we have Xfinity? I don't know. We need to research these things. These are important decisions for people when they move in the United States. But for Abraham, it was simply... I'm calling you, will you go? And he did. He packed up his wife and he went. And he went to this country where he was living as an immigrant. And he was living there in complete obscurity. Nobody knew or cared who his God was. And there the story began with Abraham. But oftentimes in Christendom, when we look back on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see them as perfectly shiny, gleaming examples. They were not. They were flawed. Some of them were, quite frankly, fractured. And they all had some significant issues, right? That's why you say things now. They're issues, right? They have issues. Um, Abraham was a liar, repeatedly, almost pathologically so. When he opened up his mouth, many times lies came out. And sometimes they were very manipulative lies. For instance, one time there was a famine and they had to flee from Canaan down to Egypt. And on the way down there, he says to his wife, you are really attractive. So much so that they're going to kill me so that they can have you. And so I have an idea. We're going to tell them you're my sister. 
How this fixes anything, I don't know. But anyway, this is what he's decided. I need you to pretend to be my sister. So now not only is he lying, but he's asked his wife to lie. And so they do. They get to Egypt and they lie. And Pharaoh apparently agrees that she's a very attractive woman. Pharaoh says, bring her to me. And he adds her to his collection of wives. And God says, oh, no, 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 not good, not good. I will fix this. And so God sends a plague upon the house of Pharaoh for the sake of Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh says, why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me? If you told me she was your wife, I wouldn't take her as mine. Why did you lie? And Abraham goes, well, I was afraid. So I lied. Because no one ever does that. No one ever gets afraid and lies. Today. Right? And so that's what he did. And, and Pharaoh was like, okay, well, I just need you to leave because there's something really bad going on here. So I just need you to leave. Take all of these gifts and this money and this wealth and get out. And Abraham goes, okay. So he goes back home. And then there's another famine later. And so then this time they go to a different country. And he says, oh, you're very attractive. Let's try this sister as wife thing again. Because it apparently became very lucrative the first time. Why wouldn't you do it again? So they lie again. And Abimelech takes her to be his wife. And God once more has to, for the sake of Abraham, send a plague upon the Philistines. And they're like, why are you, why did you lie to us? Why didn't you just tell us who she was? We wouldn't have taken her if we knew who she was. And he's like, well, I was afraid. Thought you'd kill me. And they're like, well, we want to kill you now. And so they did the same thing. They gave him a lot of wealth to get out. Say a prayer for us and leave. And so that's how Abraham kind of established himself. By lying and then getting paid to leave. Think of it as a settlement. And so he was a liar many times. And he involved his wife and officials and other countries. And other people were hurt by the plagues that were brought about because of his lies. Does this sound like a shining example of who we want to raise our children to be? No. And that's not. That's not how we want our children to behave. I think most parents spend a lot of time saying, don't lie. Tell the truth. Because you know what happens if you lie? Your children learn to lie. Isaac learned to lie. Guess what Isaac did? One time, Isaac had to flee from a famine. So he said to his wife, Rebecca, Rebecca, you are very attractive. And when we go here to the Philistines, I think we should tell them that you're my sister. Wonder where he got that weird idea. And so they went, although Isaac was not quite as lucky as his father, Abraham. One day, the king and his officials look out and see Isaac being very physically romantic with his sister. And they go, whoa, time out. What part of Canaan are y'all from? What is going on over here? And he's like, well, she's not actually my sister. She's my wife. And, they're like, and again, why did you lie? Why lie? Well, because I was afraid. I was afraid. Being faithful does not mean that you don't have fear. Being faithful means that when you come to the turning point where you're either overtaken by your fear or you cling to your faith, you cling to your faith in spite of your fear. And Abraham and Isaac got so afraid that they abandoned the truthful piece and just decided that they'll fake it, right? And because it was lucrative, there was kind of, you know, some benefit to doing it. But do you really think it made God happy to have these people, these patriarchs, be pathological liars? No. And then you've got Jacob. Jacob's a hot mess. Jacob equals hot mess in scripture, okay? 
Jacob comes from a long line of liars. He's not a liar. He's a deceiver. And they're very closely related, right? He's a deceiver. So he is the second born. His brother Esau is older. And by the cultural and the biblical standards, Esau should have been the one to inherit everything. But Jacob didn't like that. So Jacob one day had made all of this food because he liked to hang around with his mother. So he learned how to cook really well. And he had made this food and Esau came in and Esau was dying of hunger. Have you ever had a kid tell you that? I'm dying of hunger. And Jacob says, oh, look, I have this amazing food. I will give you my food for your birthright. Esau's hungry. You're going to take advantage of your starving, hungry brother for his birthright, his inheritance? Oh, yes, he is. And out of his desperation, Esau sold his birthright, his inheritance, for a bowl of stew. Not the brightest one in the family. But he did. He sold it. Well, he had one more hope. And the hope was that Abraham and Isaac had started a tradition of blessing people in the name of God, and God would fulfill those blessings. So Esau was clinging to the hope that the blessing that he would receive from his father Isaac would override the fact that he sold his birthright and he could still manage to have some kind of worthwhile existence. And so he was waiting for the day on his father's deathbed that his father would give him his blessing. Well, Jacob didn't just want the goods. He wanted the blessing. And so he dressed up with a fur pelt to deceive his blind, bedridden, dying father and make him believe that instead of it being Jacob who was going to get the blessing, it would be Esau. And so in the darkness of the tent, he snuck in and he received Esau's blessing. Not only did he get the goods, he got the grace. And Esau, when he found out that his father had been deceived, was so angry. And he said, did you save anything for me? Any part of the blessing? Anything? And, and Isaac said, no, I gave it all to him because I thought it was you. And I wanted to bless you. I love you. You're a son after my own heart. And I thought I was blessing you. And your brother took it. He took it. And Esau was livid. Livid. So Jacob did the adult appropriate thing and ran away from home. And he ran away and he saw a really pretty lady and he decided to marry her and he started a life and he ended up having not one but two wives and not one but two concubines and 11 children. And the day came for him to return home. And as he started to come home, Jacob hears from his people that Esau is riding out to meet him with 400 armed men. That sounds like a picnic, doesn't it? Oh, look, he's happy I'm home. So he came up with this really great idea. Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll space everybody out. We'll start walking toward him and we'll put my concubines in the front and then some of their kids and then my wives and some of their kids and we'll have gifts interspersed all through there so that by the time he gets to me, he won't be angry anymore because this is how leaders of families act. They hide in the rear with the gear. So that's what he did. He did this and Esau, you know, came through and greeted everybody and got there. And he said, welcome home, brother. Come home with me. Come home with me. And Jacob's like, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I'm going to camp here tonight. I'll see you tomorrow. 
be fine. So that night, he has a divine encounter. And Scripture's a little nebulous about whether or not it was actually God in human form or one of the angels or a divine being, however it was. He starts wrestling, physically wrestling with this being. And as the sun is coming up, they've done it all night. And as the sun is coming up, Jacob says, bless me. And the being says, no, let go of me. I have to leave. And he says, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. And the being reach out, reaches out and knocks his hip out of line, disables him. As a sign of the wrestling, he's disabled. Now, if we were to follow along with this logic, we've got a pathological liar who taught his son to lie, who then gets deceived by his deceptive and conniving grandson. Welcome to the patriarchy. And Christendom didn't like that. Do you ever grow up with silver things, like silver teapots or silver um, cut, cut, cutlery, where you had to polish it? You ever had that? Raise your hand if you ever had to do the, the polish. Oh, there you are. Yeah. I didn't, because smart children go away. But my poor father had to do that. And so every day... Um, before Thanksgiving, my mother was prepping a giant meal for the four of us and the dog, and my father would be polishing silver. My mother had an extensive collection of silver, and he, would, he even had a special toothbrush to get in there in the filigree, and you would walk by, and you'd be like, Dad, that looks awesome. He's like, do you want to help? I'd be like, no, you're doing so well. I don't want to mess it up. Your standards are very high. And so you would get away and not get roped into that, and then you wouldn't go into the kitchen because you didn't want to shuck corn all day. So you stay away from all of this stuff. But my mother didn't like to have tarnish on her silver, right? Silver is supposed to gleam. She didn't like tarnish on it. This is why I have everything stainless steel. You don't have no problem, right? But my mother wanted it gleaming. She didn't like the patina. She didn't like the fingerprints. She didn't like the tarnish. And so she would polish it. And in Christendom, we thought, you know what? A little bit of tarnish on those patriarchs. We should polish them up. And so we let people think that they were heroes and that they were perfect. They are not and scripture is very clear that they are not. So what is it? Why is God identifying in Exodus, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these three hot messes? Why? Why is God claiming them? What is so good about them? And the truth is that as Christians, we ought to be looking at it from the other side. That despite the fact that one's a pathological liar who then raised his child to lie, and despite the fact that Jacob, who will become Israel, and his 12 sons will eventually be the founders of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, they were loved in spite of their lying and their sinning and their deception, in spite of their flaws, in spite of their willingness to break God's will, God still loved them. We've seen this. You've seen a parent where you're like, you just need to cut that kid off. You need to cut that kid off. And the parent's response is always, but I love them. And God is saying that about us, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love you. I love you when you sin. I love you even when you say ridiculous things or when you misquote my scriptures because you don't read them. God is saying, I still love you. I am committed to the relationship. I am committed to the walk, the faith. If you will be faithful to me, then my forgiveness will be yours. I am willing to go on this journey with you, even though you might be just as flawed, if not more so, than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is leading us into this. That's what 
Moses is being told in Exodus. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now in your Bibles, if you open it up and to see that, you'll find that it's the capital L with the small cap O-R-D. And it says Lord. But if we were to speak biblical Hebrew, we would see that instead of Lord are the letters Y-H-W-H, which say Yahweh, Yahweh. And for a long time, Christianity had in, unintentionally mistranslated that as Jehovah. Ever heard of Jehovah? But what happened was eventually we realized that we could actually be in a good relationship with our Judaic brothers and sisters who speak biblical Hebrew, and that they might actually help us understand this text that was theirs. And so they said, no, 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 it's not Jehovah, it's Yahweh. And Christians said, well, why have we never heard you say Yahweh before? And they said, well, out of respect and because there's a commandment somewhere that says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. We don't say it, therefore we will never take it in vain. But what God was giving to Moses for the people of Israel, which our Judaic brothers and sisters inherited, and which we have now rightfully learned, is God's personal name. God the Father has a personal name. My title is reverend. My title is pastor. My name is Sarah. It's the name that my parents chose for me, that they gave to me, that they have called me from the day of my birth. That is my personal name. People used to pick on my son when he was little. They would point to me and go, who is that? And he would say, that's mom. And they'd go, no, that's Pastor Sarah. And he'd go, no, it's not. It's mom. And he had this vain thing that was very amusing. And so people would do this all the time. Because his personal name for me was mom. That was my name. Not Pastor Sarah, not Sarah, Mom. That's how he called me. That was his intimate name for me. God the Father gave Moses and the people God the Father's intimate name. We have the intimate name of God the Son. We know him as Jesus. And we have the intimate name of God the Holy Spirit. The, the book of Acts records this as the advocate or the comforter. We have those intimate names that we can call upon, not just the titles, God says, I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. And the Hebrew is El Shaddai, the title Almighty. I gave them my title, but not my personal name. I am taking the relationship deeper. I am now going to let you call on me by my name. And be in relationship with me. And I'm going to show you this land that I gave covenantally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of their descendants. I am giving it to you and I will show it to you. And as we walk there, you can call me by my name. For there is nothing more personal than that. And so God offers us this deep intimacy to call upon God's personal name. Now, we can use titles. There's nothing wrong with referring to the Lord as the Lord or um, El Shaddai, the Almighty. There's nothing wrong with that. And the reason why it appears in English as Lord is that in order not to refer to God as Yahweh and risk the wrath of Yahweh, the Israelites and then later their spiritual descendants, the Jews, would refer instead to Adonai, 
which is the Hebrew for Lord. And so we have continued that with our English translation of Lord. That's why that's there. And so they, God promises that we can have this relationship, that even though we may be slightly less, slightly on par, or a whole lot more messed up than the patriarchs, depending on where we find ourselves on what day, we can still call upon God's name. We can still have this deeply personal relationship with the Lord of all. What a gift we've been given. And when we spend too much time trying to polish the tarnish off of the patriarchs, what we end up doing is making them seem so high and their faith so unattainable. And yet, throughout it all, it wasn't that God was putting them on a pedestal for us, but instead that God was coming down to where they were and hanging out here in the mess and in the muck of life with them and where their sinfulness was lived out and is inviting us to be in that same relationship. Call my name and I will walk with you. Pray to me and seek my wisdom and I will be yours, says God. The same God who gave the world to Abraham the same God who continued that faithfulness and that blessing to Isaac, the same God who multiplied the fruitfulness of Jacob and was with him and allowed him to be successful, the same God who continued this through the prophets and the priesthood, King David, and all of those who were both the lineage and the spiritual forebearers for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's easy to be a Christian in 2018 and go, well, all the good stuff already happened. All we do is read about it. Nothing great happens. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got to have personal experiences with God. And all the ancient Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai with Moses, and they got to make the covenant, which, by the way, they were also scared that I'm sure they could have sold a lot of Depends that day. But that was their experience. And then we could say, and the apostles were privileged above all of us. They got to see God in human form, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, got to walk and listen and disappoint him many, many times. And then those same apostles get privileged on Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And we get a little sprinkle. All the good stuff already happened. We could say that. We could take that perspective. But instead, if we take the model of the patriarchs and dig a little deeper, we will discover that what God is offering is for us to be the vessels of the same God. God said, I shine differently through Abraham than I do through Isaac and Jacob. I shine differently through Moses and the Israelites than I do through the apostles and the Christians of the modern world. But all of us together create a prism through which God is more fully known, heard, encountered, and seen, and celebrated. We are all being given an opportunity through our unique voice, our perspective, our experience, these vessels to bring a piece of God into the world. God kept saying to Abraham all the way down to the modern Christians today, I am giving a piece of myself to you. Whether it was the blessing, whether it was the covenant, whether it was the baptism, the anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
starting at Pentecost, whatever it was, I've given a piece of myself to you and I'm asking you to take it out into the world. We aren't just building the kingdom here, brothers and sisters. We are called to build it there, out that door and out that door. You can't go that far out that door, but that way, that way, and that way. That way, if you will build the kingdom where you go, if you will shine Jesus, God Almighty, El Shaddai, Elohim, Adonai, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, Christ, whoever it is, whatever title, whatever name you want to invoke for God on high, if you will go out and shine that, then what I said to the children might just become true because I told them both the truth and the deception. I told them that wherever you see that cross in flame, there you will find your brothers and sisters in faith. And there you will find help in your time of need, hospitality when you are a stranger. There you can go and seek shelter and sanctuary. And there it shall be. But we all know the truth, don't we? That there are some buildings with that symbol that don't show hospitality. We know that there are some buildings where not all of us are welcome. We know that unfortunately, because human sinfulness is still a problem, that symbol is not the universal sign of Christ in us. But we can change that here in Crozet. There are times when people come into our building and experience how we welcome other people and they are radically impacted. And it's not just because of JR, he's amazing. But it takes all of us to reflect Christ to the stranger. It takes all of us to welcome someone and let them know that here they could be family. We took two parents into membership at 930 and they had their two young children, one who's still an infant. And they have walked up before the altar of God and they stood here and they took their membership vows and they looked out at the congregation and they claimed us. They claimed Crozet United Methodist Church as their family of faith. So what? Does it matter? It should. The congregation responded with a covenantal vow that they would embrace them, that they would open themselves up to hear God in their voice, give them vote and power in the organization and the leadership of this church to be impacted and to have them become part of our missions and our ministries. The church responded by saying, we want you. We are not all that we should be without you. We are deficient. We are fractured and we are flawed unless you are a part. And when the United Methodist Church reflects that kind of radical hospitality, then we make our Lord and Savior proud. And we start to show the world that God does know us and care and doesn't abandon us just because we aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. We're just deeply profoundly and sacredly loved that is the truth that is what the the apostles all the way back to the patriarchs were trying to tell us that's what the scriptures record they record that we are loved not that we're perfect not that we're ever going to be perfect in this life although we strive because we're methodists we are working so hard because most of the world has no idea that this is for them.
that the same God who is good. You think it's hard to get through this book? Try living it as God. Try living through this. Knowing that at the end of every chapter, at the end of every book, at the end of the anthology, there are still people that will break your heart. That will spur in your love. That will reject your grace. Try being God and living that. And yet, every single day that you and I wake up, God says, today is a new day. And today, I love you just as much as I ever have. And today, I want you to love me back. I want you to love me back, and I want you to love others as you love me. And if we, as the United Methodist Church, choose to embody that kind of theology and that kind of biblical grace, the more and more people will come to know that this isn't our God. This is our God. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and flawed, imperfect, but loved sinners everywhere and for all time. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.